We've already mentioned how each Sunday in Advent we've been uh, lighting these candles on our wreath. And we do that to help us remember the arrival, the advent of Jesus Christ, born as a baby in Bethlehem. And three of our candles are purple, symbolizing the royalty of Jesus Christ. He is the king. But what is the significance of that, that Jesus is the king? How are we supposed to think about his kingship? We've just had a new king here in the UK, and it's quite likely that in a few years we will have another new king. Is that how we are to think of Jesus' kingship as a passing phase, something we celebrate for a while before moving on? Well, to answer that question, we're going to take a break from looking at John's gospel, and we're going to go back deep into the history of Israel to find Advent, the prequel. The passage we're going to read together is 2 Samuel chapter 7, part of that chapter. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find it on page 310 in the green Bibles or in the larger print Bibles, page 477. And before we read this, we need some help to understand what we're jumping into. 2 Samuel deals with the reign of King David. It's a reign that was promised long before it happened. David was anointed king back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when he was a young man, almost certainly still a teenager. He was still working for his father as a shepherd. And from that moment, when he was anointed by the prophet Samuel, David was God's Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. But it was many years before David began to reign. He spent a long time on the run from King Saul. Saul was the king God had rejected. But Saul clung to the throne for a good while after God had rejected him. So David's path to the throne was long, and it was hazardous. But the passage we're about to read takes place at a time when everything finally seems to have fallen into place. Saul is dead. David has been installed as king over all Israel. He has inflicted a crushing defeat on Israel's greatest enemy of the time, the Philistines. And David's friend Hiram has just built David a luxury palace in Jerusalem, a palace of cedar. And now we read in the first 17 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 7, after the king was settled in his palace, And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But... That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This 
is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning." And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by man, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is God's word. And it records an exchange between David and the Lord God. It's not exactly a conversation, but it is an exchange. And it starts with a contribution from David. God's kingdom has arrived. Verse 1 reminds us, after years of living on the run, David is finally the acknowledged king of Israel. The Philistines are subdued. David is settled in his beautiful new palace. Surely this is as good as it gets. Surely all that's left to do is to build a permanent home for God. That's what David is getting at in verse 2 when he says to his friend Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, well, the ark of God remains in a tent. The ark of God was a wooden box, but it was more than just a box. It was a God-given symbol of God's presence and power. 
It was understood to be God's footstool, the place where his presence touched earth. And up to this point, that ark, that box, has been situated in a tent called the tabernacle. But surely now, David thinks, it's time for God to be honored with a permanent residence, a great temple in Jerusalem. David asks Nathan about that idea, and Nathan thinks it's a wonderful idea. In verse 3, Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. What can we say about this conversation between David and Nathan? Well, we can certainly say that David's intention is good, and there's a sense in which David is right. Israel is God's kingdom. And there's no denying it seems like a high point has been reached at this time in history. David is God's anointed king, finally installed in Jerusalem, ruling God's kingdom Israel, having defeated the enemies of God's kingdom. It's only natural for David to think this is as good as it gets. But as C.S. Lewis said, we are far too easily pleased. Certainly when it comes to our ideas of what God has in store, we are far too easily pleased. That's what's wrong with David's thinking here. There's a lot that's right about his thinking, but what's wrong with it is that it's too small. David imagines this is it. God's kingdom has arrived. But in verses 4 to 17, God the Lord replies to David, No, David, I'm just getting started. Nathan has been too quick in giving David the go-ahead to build a temple. And that night, God gives Nathan a message for David. And the first part of that message is, I will not rest, God says, until my people truly rest. The way David has been thinking is it's a negative thing that the ark of God's been in a tent. But here God explains that no, a tent is perfect. A tent suits my purposes because a tent is movable. And I'm the kind of God who moves with his people. I travel with them on their journey. Look again at verse 7. God says to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The key point here is that God chose a tent for himself. Back in the book of Exodus, God commanded Moses to make the tabernacle tent. It was made to God's exact specifications. And yes, it was impressive. It was constructed from the finest materials, 
but it was still a tent. And David has taken that to mean it was inadequate. But in fact, the tabernacle was not a case of God making do. By choosing a tent for himself, God was sending a message about the kind of God he is. He's the God who goes with his people. Through the desert, as well as through the fertile valleys. He travels with them to get them safely to their destination. And here through Nathan, God says to David, David, I've gone with you as well. Verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Wherever you have gone, David, from those years as a shepherd out on the hillside, fighting off lions and bears to protect your father's sheep, through all those years when you were a king in waiting, David, when you were anointed by me but not yet acknowledged by the people, when you were living on the run, hounded by Saul, hiding in caves, David, I have been with you through it all, the Lord says, wherever you have gone. Here, of course, the tabernacle tent has faded out of the picture. David didn't have that tent with him on his travels. But God is making the point the tabernacle was an illustration. It went with the Israelites through the desert to show the God of Israel is the God who goes with his people. And that reality was equally true in David's case. Even though he didn't have the tabernacle with him, God was with David. And not just with David, God was leading him just as God led the Israelites through the desert. God led David from tending sheep through those years on the run from Saul and most recently to the throne. And we've seen how David thought that was it. The journey was over now. He had arrived. God's kingdom had arrived. But as far as God is concerned... Their journey is far from over. Look at the middle of verse 9. Having spoken about his leading of Israel and David in the past, now God says in the middle of verse 9, Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. As we read that last sentence, we might raise our eyebrows because the first verse of this chapter told us 
God had given David rest from all his enemies. So what's this about? Has God forgotten what was said in verse 1? Not at all. The rest mentioned in verse 1 was a temporary rest. It was a brief lull in hostilities. But the Philistines weren't gone. They were just licking their wounds for a while. The rest David has been experiencing is just temporary rest. But God has a much greater rest in mind. God is leading his people to a perfect, permanent rest. David thought the journey was over, but it's a long way from over. And what about God's promise here in verse 10? To give his people a place. To give them a home of their own. Don't they have a place? Isn't the land of Israel their home? Isn't it the place God promised their ancestor Abraham generations before this? Yes. And at this point, they are well settled in that home. But here God shows he has a greater home in mind for his people. A greater place for his people. Israel is the promised land, but verse 10, God says, it's not the ultimate promised land I have for my people. What God is doing here is telling David there's much more to come. David has been far too easily pleased. He thought the kingdom he could see from his palace window in Jerusalem was the be-all and end-all of the kingdom God had in mind. That's why David wanted to build a temple as a kind of glorious full stop to the story. The kingdom has arrived. But it hasn't. At least not in the perfected, permanent form God has planned. God has an eternal kingdom in mind. And here he declares he will not rest until his people truly rest in that eternal kingdom. And in the final section of our passage, God announces, a son of David will set up my eternal kingdom. At this point, we need to be aware of a play on words. It's been going on since verse 1. It's all to do with the word house. Verse 1 used the word palace, referring to David's palace, but literally the word is house. Then in verse 5, God pointed to the fact that David wanted to build a house for God, meaning a temple. And now here in the second half of verse 11, the word house is used in yet another way, referring to a dynasty or dynasty, whichever way you pronounce that word. God says to David, you are sitting in your house in Jerusalem, wanting to build me a house, but here's what's going to happen. I'm going to build you a house, David. Look in the middle of verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself 
will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In verse 11, God says, he will establish a house for David, meaning a line of rulers, a dynasty. And verse 13, one of that line of rulers will build God's house, the temple, God's permanent dwelling place. God says, my plans go way beyond your death, David. You're in such a rush to get it all done now. But I'm working on a longer scale. At the end of verse 13, my plans are forever. Forever is the key word in this section. It's repeated twice more in verse 16. Forever is the time scale God works with. You and I are like David in the sense that we think in weeks and months and years. If we don't see God doing things in that sort of time scale, we get impatient, don't we? We think God's never going to do it. But God says, don't panic about what does or doesn't happen tomorrow. I am working with forever. That's my time scale. We have difficulty thinking in terms of forever and we have trouble conceiving that things could be radically different from what they are now today. We tend to think that temporary fragile rest and peace is as good as it can get. We're like David in that sense as well. We find it hard to imagine perfect eternal rest. But God's imagination is not so limited. And thankfully, God is not limited in his ability to deliver what he imagines. He can and will make it a reality. And in fact, there are stages to the fulfillment of what's God, what God is talking about here. That a son, a descendant of David, will build a permanent dwelling place for God. The promise comes about in stages. In the short term, David's son Solomon will build a house for God. It's described in the book of 1 Kings. Solomon, the offspring of David, oversaw the construction of an impressive temple in Jerusalem. But it was not the forever temple. It did not bring perfect, permanent rest for God's people. Solomon's reign was not forever. And the reason was Solomon was not the perfect king. Look at God's promise in verse 14. Speaking about David's offspring, God says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by man, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. 
as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In these verses, God speaks about punishment for David's offspring. But God also confirms the permanence of his promise about David's offspring. When God punishes one of David's sons, it will be discipline, the way a father disciplines his son. It will not be a sign of abandonment. It is for the son's good. In verse 14, God says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. When discipline needs to happen, it will be in that context of a loving father-son relationship. David's house, his dynasty, his line will not be cut off in the way that Saul's was. Saul was the king of Israel before David, and his house was cut off. His offspring did not rule. But in the case of David and his offspring, God has made a forever promise. And so human failure will not mean the failure of God's promise. The survival of David's house will not be because it was better than Saul's. It will be because of God's forever promise to David's house. David's house will survive because of God's faithfulness. Not the faithfulness of David's offspring. And that is exactly how it plays out. As we read on in the Old Testament, we find that David's offspring did plenty of wrong. And they were punished for it. Solomon himself was not faithful to God. And when Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel was split in two. And eventually, after generations of unfaithfulness, Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And the Israelites were taken away from their land into exile. God brought discipline, as he promised to do here in verse 14. He brought discipline, but he did not forget the other half of his promise in these verses. The promise that David's house and kingdom would endure forever. That a son of David would have the throne of his kingdom established forever. That promise is referred to again and again in the rest of the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, look out for it. You'll find it referred to in the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Amos and Micah. So what became of that promise that was repeated over and over? What became of it? Well, the Old Testament tells us about the eventual return of some of the exiles to Israel. But they returned not to perfect rest. They returned to a demolished temple and a pretty hard existence under foreign rulers. 
And then, into that dismal wreckage of a kingdom, comes the very first verse of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And in the following verses of that passage, Matthew traces the ancestry of Jesus' human father, Joseph, all the way back to King David. Luke, in his gospel, adds something else to the picture. He tells us Jesus is no ordinary son of David. Jesus is also the son of God. Before his birth, an angel announces this to Jesus' mother Mary. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. God's forever promise is fulfilled in Jesus. The son of David, who is also the son of God most high. John, in his gospel, has another detail for us, which also connects back to the promise to David. John tells us the son of God made his dwelling among us. Literally, he pitched his tent among us. Just like in the Old Testament, where God chose a tent as his dwelling so that he could lead his people through the desert all the way to the promised land. In a similar way, Jesus came and pitched his tent among us. Not because we had already arrived at God's perfect rest. Jesus came to lead us to that perfect eternal rest. And Jesus will not rest until we have arrived at that perfect rest. One last connection to notice between the life of Jesus and the promise in 2 Samuel 7. We've seen how David's offspring in the Old Testament did wrong, and they were disciplined for it, as God promised here in verse 14. They were punished with a rod wielded by man, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Foreign powers brought the rod of discipline. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, they brought that rod of discipline on the wrongdoing of David's offspring. But Jesus, the son of David, broke the line of wrongdoers descended from David. The New Testament tells us about Jesus. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Unlike Solomon, unlike every other descendant of David, Jesus did not deserve man's punishment or God's discipline. But we cannot avoid the fact that Jesus was punished. He did suffer. 
He was ultimately killed by human hands. Jesus was without sin. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus, the perfect son of David, was punished as a sinful son of David. So we could be forgiven. And more than just forgiven, so we could be welcomed into the family of God. So we could be made heirs of the promise to David. Given a place in God's eternal kingdom of perfect rest. That is the significance of what we celebrate at Advent. We celebrate the fulfillment of an ancient promise about an eternal king. We celebrate the assurance that God himself will go with us. That he will not rest till he has led us all the way to Christ's second advent. When he comes to establish his eternal kingdom on God's new heaven and earth. David was far too easily pleased. David thought that what he had was all there was to have. As he sat in his palace in Jerusalem, David thought God had done all he was going to do. And you and I can be like that too. We can be far too easily pleased with our houses and our cars and our careers, our retirement. We can be far too easily pleased with a nice bit of family time. We can be far too easily pleased with the rest we might have from our enemies today. Whether those enemies are financial worries, health issues, or relationship troubles. If those things are going well for us, we can begin to think that's all there is. But God's promise to David reminds us there is so much more. Christmas is about so much more. It's about God's king and his eternal kingdom. So if you are not yet a Christian, please don't be so easily pleased with what you've got right now. God has perfect eternal gifts for you. Come and receive those gifts through faith in Jesus Christ. And those of us who are Christians, let's keep this bigger reality in our minds and our hearts. This week, let's keep this bigger reality at the center of our Christmas celebrations. And let's respond to God's word together now as we celebrate this great reality. These forever promises that God will bring about in Christ. Let's do that as we sing, oh what a mystery I see. 
And then look to the skies, there's a celebration.
Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen.